Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? good because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver all never thought it could happen to them but with changes in routines distractions or a sleeping child it can happen to anyone parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly so get it in your head Check the back seat. a message from nitsa and the ad council Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Today is Thursday, November 11, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Los Angeles on the Black Star Network. We'll be joined today by Congressman Stephen Horst of Nevada, who was the first vice chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, talking about how the, the impact of the Build Back Better bill, the $1.2 trillion bill that President Biden will sign into law on Monday, how that is going to benefit African-Americans. Also on today's show, a family of a black man killed by a Chicago cop five, uh, five years ago is wondering how in the hell is he still on the force? Uh, also uh, on today's show, we'll focus on two national trials, one involving the three white men who killed Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, we'll talk to Barbara Arnwine, uh, who's been on the ground uh, fighting for justice, uh, fighting for that family, and also the defense arrest in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, the, the, uh, the young white man on trial for killing two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, also on today's show, Alabama County is the first environmental justice investigation being conducted by the Department of Justice. We'll tell you about that. Uh, also in South Carolina, a principal is accused of forcing a nine-year-old child to, I'm sorry, scrub a bathroom with a toothbrush as punishment. What the hell is that all about? And Congressman Jim Clyburn and Congressman Seth Mouton, they want uh, to pass a bill on this Veterans Day that will restore the rights of GIs, black GIs, 
who were denied benefits as a result of Jim Crow racism. It is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. The trial of the three white men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery continues in Brunswick, Georgia. And folks, this strange trial continues. The homeowner who owned the home where Ahmaud Arbery had entered that was still being constructed said that no property, to his knowledge, had been stolen. Now, these three white men, they concluded that Ahmaud Arbery was robbing houses, but even they admitted that nothing that was actually taken. They had no idea. Not only that, the defense team for these white men are upset, and they actually asked the judge to keep black pastors who have been attending the trial from being able to sit in the courtroom. Uh, here's a photo here of Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, uh, who was actually uh, in the courtroom today. This is a photo here. Uh, he posted this uh, on his Twitter feed of him sitting in the courtroom. Listen to these white attorneys try to keep black pastors out of the courtroom. My understanding, while well, I was cross-examining uh, Investigator Lowry yesterday, is that the right Reverend Al Sharpton managed to find his way into the back of the courtroom. I'm guessing he was somehow there at the invitation of the victim's family in this case. And I have nothing personally against Mr. Sharpton. My concern is that it's one thing for the family to be present. It's another thing to ask for the lawyers to be present. But if we're going to start a precedent starting yesterday, we're going to bring high-profile members of the African-American community into the courtroom to sit with the family during the trial in the presence of the jury. I believe that's intimidating, and it's an attempt to pressure, could be consciously or unconsciously, an attempt to, to pressure or influence the jury. To my knowledge, Reverend Al Sharpton has no church in Glen County, never has. Hasn't been here since Lane Brown ran for mayor, to my knowledge. But we have all kinds of people. We have school board members. We have county commissioners. We have all kinds of pastors in this town, over 100. Uh, and the idea that we're going to be serially bringing these people in to sit with the victim's family one after another, obviously there's only so many pastors they can have. And if they're pastors Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. And I'm not saying the state is even aware that Mr. Sharpton was in the courtroom. I certainly wasn't aware of it till last night. But I think the court can understand my concern uh, about bringing people in who really don't have any ties to this case, 
other than political interests. And we want to keep politics out of this case. So I'm asking the court to take appropriate steps to make sure that the gallery, which is already limited in this case, isn't being utilized for a purpose that could be viewed as improper. From state? Uh, it's a public courtroom, and I have no idea how the Reverend Al Sharpton appeared to be here. Um, so the state had no part in that whatsoever. So the state is unaware of how that occurred or how he came to be seated with the family. If a bunch of folks came in here dressed like Colonel Sanders with white masks sitting in the back, I mean, that would be so let me tell you what I had heard at lunchtime today was, and I, what I had heard yesterday before lunch is that there was going to be, um, uh, that the Reverend Al Sharpton was going to be appearing on the courthouse uh, and uh, appearing with the family. Uh, I was asked at lunch whether the court had any objection to um, Reverend Al Sharpton coming into the courtroom. And I said, as a member of the public, uh, there are certain limitations on what we can do here. What is going on? And what I was told was instead of having someone from the family sitting in the courtroom, that he was going to be sitting there instead of somebody else from the family. And my comment to that was simply, as long as things are not disruptive and it's not a distraction to the jury or anything else going on in the courtroom, so be it. Well, I will tell you that I noticed him once and that was it. And the fact that nobody else even noticed that he was in here means that everybody complied with this court's rulings on sitting in this courtroom and listening to the evidence. I don't hear a motion and I will tell you this, I'm not going to blanketly exclude members of the public from this courtroom. Um, if individuals, based on the limitations that we have in the courtroom, um, end up sitting in the courtroom and they can do so, respectful of the court's process and in compliance with this court's orders with regard to the conduct of the trial, and they're not a distraction, then I'm not going to do anything about it. And I did not hear from anyone that there was any distraction whatsoever. Mr. Chairman, do we see some of the same, or do we see some of the same items in this house or in this construction site? In the daytime, at the nighttime, in the nighttime? Yes. Okay. And from your knowledge, at this point, has anything ever been taken or disturbed? No, 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 no. no. And do you remember if you called the police this day during this daytime clip? I don't think I did. Okay. Do you remember the date that this clip was taken? I may not be correct, but I think it's the day that. As I said, one of those pastors today sitting in the court was Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. He appeared with others on the courthouse steps calling the murder of Ahmaud Arbery a lynching. We're going to scatter it out. The poor yes. people's campaign, we understand the intersection between yes. the acts of racial violence like the lynching of Arbery and the police violence that leads to all these unnecessary deaths. Somebody say unnecessary. Unnecessary. But we gotta understand 
what we have seen here with the mod is not just murder, it's an act of terrorism. Yes, yes, yes. And America, what you the only way we're gonna stop this is America, you're gonna have to come to understand that this kind of terrorism and murder is not just dangerous to black people, yes. it's dangerous to the entire country. Joining us right now from Brunswick, Georgia, Barbara Arnwine. She is president of the Transformative Justice Coalition. Daryl Jones, he is the chair of the Transformative Justice Coalition. Glad to have both of you. Y'all have been on the ground there uh, from day one. Focus on this. It's rather insulting, Barbara, uh, to listen to this white attorney specifically say to the court, deny black pastors from attending. But everybody out there, y'all have been there. This is an open, as the judge said, this is a public courtroom. This is not a closed case, a closed trial. So for this white attorney to specifically ask for black pastors not to be allowed to attend is utterly shameful. It is disgraceful. And I want you to know, Roland, that this is, I would say, the fifth motion, I believe, that he has made. He's made four motions to ban the Transformative Justice Coalition by name, and me and some others from the presence in the courthouse. Uh, and, and let me be very clear, any presence at all on the courthouse grounds. Each time the judge has denied it, he said that's grounds for mistrial, the uh, attorney has. He even in his motion, in one of his motions, wrote that the black press, the black media is how he put it, the black media was intimidating jurors by being potential jurors by being in, as part of the press pool. So this man's got problems. He's got serious problems. And I'm not shocked that he said this. I sat right in that courtroom next to Reverend Al Sharpton yesterday. There was nothing, not a stir, not a look, nothing. The jury, if, you, if you're in that courtroom, you will see that the jury is intensely watching the witnesses, the judge, and all the evidence. They're reading the transcripts. They're doing all the work that they should be doing as jurors. So I just think that this man is desperate. He knows that they are in trouble. I mean, one of the pieces of evidence that was introduced today was the evidence that the homeowner believed that there was this white couple that was actually doing all the thieving and that he actually called the police on them twice and he actually uh, called the police on them a third time when he thought he had found out where they lived. You don't hear anything about anybody going to, quote, investigate these white people, to identify these white people. But he believed they were the thieves who had taken items from his home. And he said Ahmad never took a thing, not one thing. Um, Daryl, this is pure racism by this attorney to be targeting black people. How in the world is somebody black intimidating the jury by sitting in the courtroom, listening to the proceedings. And you know, Roland, you know, thanks for having us on, and that's an excellent question. And one of the things that's been consistent from the defense team has been this, the issue of race, right? They wanted to ban the Transformative Justice Coalition because they said we were going to bring 20,000 people <laughs> into Glen County and, and put them on the courthouse steps and intimidate the jury. They wanted to ban. They, they wanted to ban the black pastors. They wanted to ban the black media. Now they even wanted to go as far, and they succeeded in banning black jurors. 
So there has been a consistency to yes. what they've done, and that is they wanted to ban anything black because you know it's not a question of intimidation because there's been no intimidation that has gone on here. The only thing that's been intimidating is that you know their presence in the courtroom is intimidating themselves. We are there, right? When uh, when when Pastor uh, Barber, when William Barber came in, he wasn't in the main courtroom. Right. He was in an overflow courtroom. Right. So they never even saw him. He was out of the vision of the attorneys as well as the jury. So you know that's it's it's just a horrible argument. So but they know they know that it ain't stopping. You know they know that we've been out marching. They know we've been out in the community. They know that Reverend Jesse Jackson is on the way. You know, they, they called him out saying that he was there. They ain't seen anything yet, Roy. You know, Reverend Jackson is coming, and it's not going to stop because this family, the Arbery family, it's not about it trying to intimidate a uh, community. It's about trying to support the family. And that's why Reverend Sharpton came. That's why Reverend uh, Barber came. That's why Reverend Jackson is coming. All of them have been invited by the family to come and provide their support. That's what this is about. It's just a, it's bad lawyering on their side to yes. try to, you know, do what they're doing and banning blacks. Really, is what they want to do is just ban blacks from the courtroom. And, you know, interesting, uh, Roland, one of the things that uh, Barbara and I always discuss, right, is that this is what they do when the nation is watching. Yes. Can we imagine what they've done in the cases when no one has been watching? That's the scary thought. And I want to point out also, Roland, when you are saying it's racist, be clear that every morning there are pastors out in front of the courthouse praying mm -hmm. with the family. And, and you know why they haven't complained about them? Because most of them are white. And they, you know, so this is very racist and very racially targeted. They're only focusing on the black pastors right. when indeed there have been rabbis out there, there have been Methodists, there have been Unitarians, there have been, you name every Christian and non-Christian de denomination, and they've been out there praying with the family. So this is really facial targeting, but they might as well just sit themselves down because we aren't going anywhere and we're bringing in more as a as Daryl said so brilliantly, we're bringing in more black pastors. We're bringing in more pastors from throughout the Glen County area because ultimately the lesson here is that this racist, vicious, vigilante killing has to be addressed. They have to be account uh, held accountable, but there needs to be a new Glen County because the fact that you got this kind of racial segregation, this kind of inopportunity, that exist in Glen County, that has to be addressed. And there's no racial justice until you address it. And they're scared because they see a new order coming. There's a new political order. He's correct. It is uh, political in the sense that the white people in the county are thinking very differently about their politics. And that's scaring them. They see a change happening in Glen County. And, you know, Roland, if I may, you know, well, adding that's, on what I, that's, that, that's what I find to be most laughable. The fact yes. that he specifically said black pastors. He didn't yes. say pastors. Yes. He specifically yes. said black yes. pastors. Darrell, go ahead. Yep. yep. No, and you know, Roland, one of the interesting things that the barber was laying out is this, is that Glen County is changing. And it's changing because, you know, one of the things that we noted in this trial uh, during the beginning stages of questioning were the number of white jurors here in Glen County that were saying that 
they thought that the actions of these defendants were despicable. Right. And, and just against them and that they formulated uh, prejudiced opinions about them already. So in terms of the changing dynamics, it's there. You, know, you got to remember that Goff is the same one who made this motion about banning the black <laughs> pastors. It's the same one who made a motion that said that his client can't get a fair trial because there are not enough uneducated white males on the jury. No, no, no. He says there's not enough bubbles. Bubbles and six packs six pack on, the, <laughs> on jury. the jury. Wow. Uh, it is. Uh, it, look, I understand the whole point of being able to defend your client. Uh, but what we're seeing here is pure racism uh, coming from uh, uh, these lawyers. And thankfully, uh, this judge rejected uh, their pleas. Uh, Y'all have been doing some great work there. Uh, we live streamed uh, the rally that you had, you had earlier. And we certainly thank uh, for the hard work that y'all are doing there uh, on the ground, uh, standing with that family. Uh, Daryl Jones uh, and Barbara Arnwhite, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you, bro. Thank you so much, Rowan. All right, I want to bring in my panel right now, Reese Colbert, founder of Black Women Views, Dr. Greg Carr with the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, Demario Solomon Simmons, civil rights attorney, founder of Justice for Greenwood. Glad to have all three of you here. Uh, you know, Reese, uh, I was sitting here listening to that attorney, and all I could hear uh, in my head uh, of you unleashing uh, Piers Morgan-level F-bombs uh, at, at the, um, the white supremacy that was just dripping out of his mouth. Yeah, and uh, I have some F-bombs coming right now because what I have to say is if y'all are so motherfucking intimidated by the presence of black people, why don't y'all leave us the fuck alone? <laughs> we wouldn't even be in a trial for these motherfuckers if they had just left Ahmaud Arbery alone. He was minding his black-ass business, jogging, committing no crimes when these white men happened upon him and decided to be slave patrol vigilantes and lynch him. So there's this, this whole notion of intimidation is bullshit. Look at Trayvon Martin walking home, minding his business, and somebody decides to be intimidated by him, George Zimmerman, and murders him. You had Botham John, who was in his apartment, his own apartment, who gets murdered because the woman is scared. You were in his apartment. Breonna Taylor, she's in her bed. She's in her apartment. And this is just the common theme of people caught claiming to be so damn intimidated by Black people while seeking us out for violence. And they're the ones that are intimidating. So I'm sick of hearing about intimidation. It's about the fact that these people believe that Black people moving freely is an affront to their white supremacist need to oversee our ever every move. It's legal. It's perfectly legal. It's actually allowed by the, the rules for the public to come. It doesn't matter who you are. There's no restriction on it. They're not being disruptive. They had to be told that Reverend Al Sharpton was there. So this, it, this, is, this is really a further just white violence. The rhetoric and, and the, the antics and the, the motions are flat-out white supremacist violence. It's disgusting to even be subjected to it. And I, I just can't even imagine what Ahmaud Arbery's family is going through. Yeah, you damn right they need all of the Holy Ghost, the Lord Jesus, every Black pastor descending on them just to keep them going, because I'm disgusted sitting here listening to the shit and these people say this, and they have no sense of humanity, of decency, 
and shame. None of it. It's disgusting. I am sick of it. I want everybody, black, white, Latino, Asian, every person of faith that can descend on that courtroom and show them that a human being was lynched in 2020. And it took the outcry of the public to even get to that damn trial. That's what I want to see. And if you're intimidated, good. Maybe you'll do the right damn thing for a change. Tomorrow, I have, um, over the years, I've covered trials. I've witnessed trials. I remember when Michael Irvin was on trial uh, and Troy Aikman uh, came to the courtroom to stand with his wide receiver. Uh, the judge, Manny Alvarez, called him into the chambers and said, look, long as you're not a disruption, as long as you don't do anything in particular, uh, if you just simply sit there like anyone else, uh, did not want signing of autographs and taking pictures in the courtroom. And Troy Aikman said, absolutely. Trials are public. This is one of the most racist things that I have ever... I've seen a lot before. This is probably one of the most overt, blatant, racist requests I have ever heard from an attorney to specifically bar black pastors. When you heard Barbara and Daryl say that there are white preachers who are standing with the family of Amart Arbery. Yeah, Roland, thanks for having me on once again. And good to see all the panelists. You know, this is something that should have been struck down more forcefully by that judge. I'm very disappointed that the judge did not admonish him, sanction him, and he should be sanctioned by the bar. I'm hoping that a black attorney down in Georgia, maybe my good friend Chris Stewart uh, in Atlanta, will, will file a bar complaint, because that is ridiculous. And we already know this judge is sympathetic to this type of racism because he allowed this trial to move forward, knowing that they were striking black jurors illegally against what's called Batson. So this is something that's, I'm right like Reese, it's sickening. It reminds me of a case I had here in uh, Oklahoma where my client was impacted or uh, uh, encountered a white security guard. The security guard had no reason to encounter my client. My client was driving off, driving away from the security guard, and he shoots him in the back, through the neck, paralyzes him, and kills him. And then the security guard said he feared for his life because the reality is that our our bodies is considered a, a dangerous weapon, and Reese had it just correct. They don't like to see us be able to move around freely. So, you know, this is just ridiculous, but that judge had a duty, and he failed the duty to admonish for, that, for that, that lawyer to say black pastors, that is overt intentional discrimination. It is the type of intentional discrimination that we did not see often until Trump came back on the scene. We know as black people that's always there. But in the courtroom, I've never seen that. I've been practicing law for 17 years. I've never seen anything like that. The judge should have admonished him, and I hope there is a bar complaint against that racist, overt, race, overt racist attorney. You know, uh, Greg, we saw the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse case just go off repeatedly against the prosecution. This was an example where this judge should have shut that down and exactly. absolutely admonished his lawyer for his racism. Yes, of course. Or not. I mean, you know, unlike turn them loose Bruce Schroeder up there in Wisconsin, turn Kyle loose. Uh, seems like the grand wizard of the uh, keep Kyle from being convicted, the KKK, up there in, in, in Wisconsin, Schroeder, who we'll talk about. This judge, uh, Timothy Walmsley, by comparison, 
is a flaming progressive. And that really is the first mark that we see of the abusive relationship called Black America with America. The idea that this man uh, spoke what he did, and I agree with you, uh, Brother Demario. It's good to see you, brother. That um, you know, he should have been much more forceful. But the fact that he even was as, relatively speaking, forceful as he was is something that uh, black people will be grateful for. But well, let's take a minute to talk about this hillbilly Kevin Robert Goff, the uh, defense attorney. Um, uh, Mr. Goff, I'd like to congratulate him, as I do all white nationalists and racists, for saying it with their chest. I don't think he was talking to any black people or anybody really in the courtroom, maybe not even the jurors. He, you know, he's talking, he's playing to his crowd. His crowd is the court of public opinion. And we know that uh, Brunswick, Georgia is 55% black. We know that the surrounding Glenn County is 70% white. And his statement wasn't just an all-shucks kind of rambling of a hillbilly lawyer. It was a carefully crafted piece of hate speech. Notice what he said. The first thing he said was, the right Reverend Al Sharpton. Now, unless I miss my, uh, unless my memory is faulty, I don't think Al Sharpton is either Lutheran, Anglican, or Catholic. And those are the uh, the areas that mostly when you call somebody right Reverend, that was the first insult, the right Reverend Al Sharpton. Then he said, managed to find his way. This is the language of apartheid. This is the language of Jim Crow. They're going to put F.W. the clerk in the ground in South Africa, get riddance uh, shortly. He just died today. But in America, when you say manage to find their way, it's, it's language you learn, you, you use for vermin. You mm. use for insects. You use for, mm. for rats and mice. And then later when he said, Jesse Jackson is going to be in here. Like, that's like a rat got in my house. A, 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 a mouse is in here. And he said, I haven't seen uh, He hadn't been here since Elaine Brown ran for mayor. Elaine Brown, former leader of the Black Panther Party, ran for mayor of Brunswick, Georgia, Brunswick, Georgia in a write-in campaign in 2005. Up until then, this majority black city had never had a black mayor, didn't have one now, although it has a black mayor now. And then finally, he didn't just say black ministers. The last thing he said was, hey, we're going to let high-profile members of the black community, oh, man, I want to, I just want to embrace that man and give him a hug that's so tight that it breaks his spine. Because I want to, I want to congratulate him for expanding that to basically any N-words come in here that ain't part of the family. He, he didn't just say ministers. He said high-profile members of the black community. It was an exquisitely crafted piece of hate speech by this white nationalist. Good job, good job. Folks, uh, that is what we are seeing and dealing with. Uh, real quick, uh, the defense, they have rested in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who was on trial for killing two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, and so uh, very soon, uh, the jury is going to actually get this, and we'll see what happens in that case as well. Got to go to break. We come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We'll talk with Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada, who was the first vice chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Bill back better bill. How will this benefit African-Americans? He'll explain next, right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Los Angeles on the Black Star Network.
Betty is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where are you going? Everybody, this is Jonathan Nelson. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. On Monday, President Joe Biden is going to sign the Build Back Better bill. Uh, in a ceremony at the White House, the $1.2 trillion bill has a whole lot in it. Uh, too many people in uh, national media have been focusing on just the number, not who it is going to help. Joining us right now is Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada, who, of course, uh, is the first vice chair of the, of the Congressional Black Caucus. Glad to have you back on the show, uh, my fellow Alpha brother. First and foremost, uh, and sorry, DeMario, uh, you know, I know ain't that many Omegas in Congress, so that's how it works. Uh, <laughs> we but Greg, you and I appreciate this. We have the members. Yes, yes, yes. Say it again. Alphas have uh, the most representation of brothers on on the Hill. Yeah, so I, I know. Trust me, Demario. Right now, he's struggling. It's all good. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about let's talk about the bill. How does this benefit black America? I get that question from a lot of people, people who have not actually taken the time to actually read the bill, to study up things along those lines. Uh, how does that benefit us? Well, first, since today is Veterans Day, I want to start by thanking uh, all of our men and women who have served and continue to serve uh, in the armed services and to their family members. Uh, every single day, we need to give them thanks, and especially today. Um, and... Uh, thank you, Roland, for having me on. Uh, you look good out there in L.A. Uh, make it, make your way out to Vegas uh, when you when you get a chance. Um, as you indicated, All right. so don't, don't worry about it. We, we'll cer we, we certainly will bring Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, to Las Vegas. No problem. We'll make it happen. We got a lot of your fans out here in Las Vegas, so I'm sure would love to see you. Um, as you indicated, President Biden will be signing the bipartisan infrastructure bill this Monday, and I I want to give a special uh, recognition to my chairwoman, Joyce Beatty, and the Congressional Black Caucus, who played a really instrumental role uh, last Friday in order to break the logjam and to get the vote on both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and to be able to move the Build Back Better forward, uh, and for this opportunity to talk about what both of these bills together do for Black America. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a historic investment um, in not only roads and bridges and highways, which historically have divided our black communities. Uh, this bill provides a historic amount of money to go in and to remediate uh, the divisions that have occurred uh, in, in some of those highway projects over time. It has a historic amount of money for public transit, uh, for broadband, so that every American has access uh, to the internet, and we are finally going to um, address the lead and pipes issue, which disproportionately affects uh, the black community. So these are just a few of the things that the bipartisan infrastructure bill will do 
in addition to the millions of jobs uh, that it will create, particularly in the black community. But how do we ensure that black folks will get those jobs? How do we ensure uh, that it will be uh, African-American contractors, uh, African-Americans with businesses who are going to get those jobs as well? So you must have been in our last uh, Congressional Black Caucus meeting because we talked about this very subject. And Chairwoman Maxine Waters of the Financial Services Committee uh, and other uh, leaders in the Congressional Black Caucus also have talked about how we will, uh, working with each of our governors, our state departments of uh, transportation, local mayors, um, require that a certain percentage of these investments touch the communities. There is language in the legislation that requires uh, the allocation based on an equity-based formula, and it also ensures that the jobs and the contracting opportunities are provided to all communities, including the black communities. Uh, in the Build Back Better, there's more than $20, million, um, $20 billion excuse me, for workforce development training, uh, and Chairman Bobby Scott has worked to make sure that those dollars flow to the communities that have been disproportionately impacted during the pandemic and this recession, um, and that will include uh, the black community. So uh, monitoring is a huge part of that. Uh, and so if the money is going to the states, how is the monitoring aspect uh, built in? Are you, uh, again, you know, what must be their reporting requirements uh, to ensure that, that the resources are going to communities uh, who are underrepresented? Because, look, we've talked about this beforehand. Uh, you know, one of the issues, uh, you know, that, that we have, uh, even I, if, when we dealt with census money, when we dealt with uh, COVID money, what black-owned media wasn't getting, what black vendors were not getting. And so, how, you know, what's the monitoring process, the reporting process? Well, we are continuing to work with Secretary Buttigieg of the Transportation Department, as well as the heads of uh, civil rights and the equity uh, division within transportation on the oversight provisions and the accountability so that uh, we don't leave any community and any person behind, particularly the black community. Um, and as we work on the Build Back Better Act, which is the second portion, not just the physical infrastructure, but the human infrastructure, it's also putting in place a number of the key equity provisions that I've worked on as a member of the Ways and Means Committee to make sure that those dollars flow to black contractors, uh, to the black community, to nonprofit organizations, as well as to uh, individuals seeking employment. The Build Back Better plan, for just a moment, is also a historic investment. It's it's about $1.75 trillion uh, that will help lift about 50% of black children out of poverty with the child tax credit, which is actually a tax cut for the majority of Americans. Um, in my district, it's about 92% of children um, who are benefiting from that child tax credit. And that is something that the Black Caucus worked to make sure got extended. It also includes a bill... Um, Roland, that I sponsored, along with several of my colleagues, the Break the Cycle of Violence bill. It's $5 billion to disrupt community uh, gun violence uh, by investing in proven community-based interventions that work 
Um, we, black men, we're about 6% of the U.S. population, but sadly account for about 50% of the gun homicides. And so that portion of the Break the Cycle of Violence is included in the Build Back Better Act. Um, and I'm really excited that we're going to be able to make a historic investment into black communities to disrupt uh, gun violence. Uh, and, and lastly, we have historic uh, investments in lowering prescription drugs uh, and health care costs and investment in clean energy, everything from clean water to clean energy uh, that's going to create millions of jobs that uh, our community will be able to participate in while we reduce energy costs for consumers. One of the things that what happens when these bills uh, get passed out into law, people don't know. They don't know what's in them. They don't know how to access it. And so uh, what are, what are y'all telling, frankly, the White House? What are you telling this federal government that they're going to have to do to, to let people know? Because, unfortunately, we know insiders, they are already lining up. We know the construction companies and others are lining up to try to get these billions of dollars. Uh, and so uh, what about that as well, uh, the outreach to get the information to the people so they know that the money is there and how they can access it? So the Congressional Black Caucus is already organizing a number of what we call town hall, town, town hall events in each of our districts. As you know, Roland, we have now 58 members. Um, now with Chantel Brown being sworn into office, it's our 50th anniversary. And we represent more than 17 million um, black constituents across the country, in addition to everyone else that we represent. And so we are literally taking the provisions of these bills to our constituents, to our districts, to our community, and promoting how people will be able to access uh, the jobs, the contracts, and the investments. Um, again, you know, we've got a long way to go to make sure that we get the second portion of that Build Back Better passed. And I want everyone who's watching to continue to reach out, to talk to your uh, senators in particular, um, so that they support that measure as it moves out of the House um, and into uh, uh, the Senate, because we need their help and their votes to get it across the finish line. We're also continuing to push on voting rights, on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, because we know that those are uh, important priorities for the black community and for the Congressional Black Caucus as well. All right, Congressman Stephen Horsford uh, of Nevada. We really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Thank you, Roland. All right, uh, let me start uh, with the alpha amongst us, uh, Greg Carr. Uh, Greg, uh, the, the point making there, when we talk about this $1.2 trillion, sorry, Demario, membership has its privileges. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about that $1.2 trillion, again, what often happens is uh, we don't know about it until it's too late. And all of a sudden, the money's all gone. This White House, this Congress, they are going to have to make a concerted effort so people know uh, to ensure that those unrepresented are getting access to the dollars. And sure, President Biden, he's signing the bill into law, uh, this infrastructure bill, on Monday. Okay? When Vice President Kamala Harris comes back from France, guess what? Biden and Harris need to be on the road. Every cabinet member. They need to be good. And, and here's the deal. Don't go to just uh, blue suburbs. Go to the brokest, reddest, 
whitest MAGA loving places and say, yeah, y'all broke, your bridges are jacked up, your health care is jacked up, your water is jacked up. We passed this stuff for you. That was the I kept saying that was the biggest, and I told Obama to his face. I told Valerie Jarrett that. I said, y'all got to go to the belly of the beast and let them know we made this possible and the folk y'all keep voting for voted against it and this actually can help you. I wish they would have listened to you, Roland. Uh, we saw the former president of the United States who often finds his most courageous moments when he is completely powerless to act um, in Scotland, uh, waving his, wagging his finger at the leaders of the world on climate change. And uh, President Obama, again, a day late and uh, a mint short. Uh, it w in a fantasy world, sure, they, they would fly right to Richmond or take the train, Amtrak, right to Rich Richmond, Virginia, and start there. Now that they've elected a white nationalist governor and say, uh, we dare you, Mr. Governor-elect, to block this money that's coming to the citizens of Virginia and all you toothless hillbillies that ran out there screaming CRT and voted for this white nationalist. You're about to receive an infusion of funding for everything from the child tax credit to improved health access to health care. That is, if he doesn't block it. Not only would they not go to the blue areas, I'd go to the blood red areas and wage a complete and utter political war. But they're not going to do that. Hell, they won't even go uh, mess with that cosplay coal mining coal baron sitting in West Virginia trying to become the state's first billionaire. They scared of Joe Manchin. So, no, they're not going to do it. But, you know, when we think of the fact, in fact, the South should be their targeted place. Three out of every four students that goes to an HBCU is Pell Grant eligible. There are billions of dollars in this, grant, in, in this bill for Pell Grant students. And 40% of the students who were enrolled in undergraduate school in the country are Pell Grant eligible. I'd go to Georgia, I'd go to Mississippi, be like Sherman, march a blazing path through the South. And then finally, and Steve Horford knows this, our frat brother, as we know, uh, Steve knows this, Brother Hor Horford, Representative Horford, his fourth congressional district in Nevada is, uh, there's 40 some percent white, but there's a plurality of black and Spanish-speaking voters, and all the Spanish-speaking voters aren't so-called Hispanic. Uh, there are others as well, and you got Native Americans out there. Look at the expansion of health care benefits. Look at the expansion of everything from uh, rural partnership programs for these indigenous communities where they're finally going to get electrified and get service out there and broadband service. I would go into mo I go to West Texas. I go to El Paso. I would blaze a trail through Nevada, Iowa, Idaho, not to neglect all these places where people did vote for the people who passed this, but go to those other places too and dare them, posterize them. Because uh, as they say in um, in uh, Game of Thrones, winter is coming. 2022 is coming. They're going to eat the Democrats' lunch, the white nationalist party. So they better be doing something now. You know, uh, Reese, you've already got Senator Mitch McConnell calling it a godsend, this bill. Guess what? Send Harris to his hometown and stand there and say, Kentucky, thank the Democrats for making this thing possible. See, I believe in hand-to-hand -hand combat, Reese. We know <laughs> you believe in it as well. I believe in being in somebody's face. I'm talking about go, go to the, the hometown of, go, go to Florida and sit here and say to, um, uh, to Scott, and say to Marco Rubio, this is what we're bringing. And then go to, go to their precinct where they vote and hold an event. 
Do the same thing in South Carolina to Tim Scott. I would sit here and target all these fools, and I would sit here and, 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 and look them in the eye and say, and I would stand. In fact, I, I, would, be, I would be so brazen, Reese. I would go to something that's tore and run down in Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas, and I would no say the money we pass is going to rebuild this bridge. It's going to rebuild this here. And then I would then sweep on over to Texas and Oklahoma mm. and Nebraska and do the same thing. This is how Democrats have got to respond and then say, I dare y'all call this communism. That's right. I agree. And, um, you know, I think that we will see a, a bigger blanketing of the country from Democrats. But to your point, are they going to go in these super red areas? I think perhaps Secretary Pete would, but I haven't seen as much of that from, you know, the, the, the other star players, obviously Vice President Kamala Harris. She did travel quite extensively. She traveled to um, Las Vegas. She traveled to the Bronx, New Jersey, several places. These are blue, heavily blue areas, but you cannot also neglect your base. Um, you had Secretary Fudge. And uh, um, EPA Administrator Regan, who were also, you know, touring uh, Flint and Michigan and areas like that, Detroit. And so I think that they could always do more in terms of really selling the package. And I think that, you know, even when Vice President Kamala Harris is out there, people say you, you want to see her and then people don't really cover it. But I, I still think that she will definitely be out there really selling this bill. But the, the one point I wanted to make, though, was... I think that the administration and the Democrats have to be very careful to make sure that they are being consistent and relentless in messaging what this bill is about. Uh, Congressman Hosford mentioned his $5 billion gun violence uh, plan, which I think sounds amazing, but I saw immediately on social media people, you know, picking that up and saying, oh, you're telling me that money for the police is for Black people? And that's not what the bill is suggesting at all. It's for community-based violence prevention programs. So there are certain ways where Democrats do stuff that's positive that gets spinned or spun into something that's negative. So I hope that I, I, if I would have been able to ask him a question, I would have said, can you clarify that point? Um, I didn't see police mentioned at all in the, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, except for to define, you know, um, climate change type of things, but certainly not for additional funding. So I want them to be very disciplined with their messaging, very consistent, blanketing it, people being on the same accord and getting out there. Congress people need to be in their districts. The 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 um the, the cabinet officials need to be out. Everybody needs to be out selling it and they still gotta finish the job with the Build Back Better plan. I'm trying to tell you, Demario, you got to get in that face. And 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 you have to use real life examples. I would you talking about the electric grid, you're talking about bridges, you're talking about ports, uh, you're talking about uh, all types of infrastructure. And again, what you do is you go to something that's broken down and they've been trying to get funded in Oklahoma. And you stand there and you say, I dare any Republican to convince me that fixing this bridge is communism. Hmm. See, that's what you have to do. And then you sit here and you tell the people in the community, and, I'm, and they likely voted red. And you say, we passed this bill to ensure that y'all are able uh, to be able to cross this path. It, hmm. Joe Madison says all the time, you got to put it where the goats can get it. 
Stop calling it the $1.2 trillion plan. No, 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 no. You got to say, we're going to fix this for $5 million, and this for $10 million, and this for $20 million, and this is going to help y'all get to school on time, and this is going to help you cut your, uh, cut your commuting time to work, and this is going to help you improve your water. That's how you got to sell this thing. You can't, can't be all cute and shit. You got to get down there and get into the mud and say, this is what we're doing. So in other words, they need to do like the bros omegas are known to do and get right in the face of people. So, uh, you know, Roland, you know you talk in my language, and that's what now, we do. Now, you know omegas. that ain't the truth. And I, I want to say, I want to <laughs> be real clear that who is the highest-ranking black person in Congress? What fraternity is he in? Oh, okay, he's an omega, Jim Clyburn, okay. Actually, no, hold up, hold up. I'm going to let you finish. No, I'm going to let you finish your story. I'm going to let you finish your story, but actually... The highest-ranking black person in Congress is the one who oversees the United States Senate, and that's Vice President Kamala Harris, who's an AKA. He's not in Congress. See, he's what you should have He's defined. not in Congress. No, 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 no. Demario, I want you, Demario, I want you to read the Constitution. Who he's, is he's not leader of the United States Senate? Who breaks ties? She is the leader of the United DeMario, States Senate, but she's the you president. Didn't do, Demario. You did not do well in government class. Alpha no, did. No, you no, gotta make a point show, I'll, wipe, you... I'll wipe the floor with you. It's your show, so I'm gonna let you do that. I also want to give a lot of props to Representative Horsford and the, and the CBC because they actually came to Tulsa and uh, uh, Representative uh, Beatty and the CBC came to Tulsa and they were big supporters of a Justice for Greenwood Foundation. They actually had over 25 members of the CBC personally donate to our 501c3. So I just want to give big props to the CBC for what they're doing. And this bill is something we've been monitoring because we talked to the secretary of, uh, 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 of HUD, uh, Marshal uh, Representative Fudge. We've talked, we've listened to Pete Buttigieg talk about this money that's in this bill to get rid of these type of highways like we have in Tulsa with I-244. And there's billions of dollars in there and it's air, some earmark money for black organizations. And the monitoring role that you talked about is so important because we know that in the counties like Tulsa County and city of Tulsa are down there where the arbitral is happening. These counties are still controlled by racist, conservative white people who do not want those funds, those dollars going into black contractors, black businesses, black organizations. You talked about the, the COVID funding that has Black businesses and black organizations have been shut out. So in this particular bill, we're looking forward to this opportunity to access this money, to get rid of these boundaries and these barriers, like these highways that were put through black communities, that destroy black communities, that continue to keep us segregated from other parts of town. So that is something that is important in this particular bill. And Roland, this is why your show is so important, because you're calling people on the carpet to make sure we understand what we need to do. And what we need to do is be at these city hall meetings, be at these county meetings, make sure we access professionals within the city to say, hey, let me retain you to make sure we understand what's happening, to make sure we're getting our percentage of this big pie. This is a once-in-a-lifetime generational deal, and we want to make sure that black organizations and black people benefit from this completely. And as far as your hand-to-hand -hand combat discussion, Roland, I totally agree. The problem is, I don't think the Democrats are going to be strong enough that we need them to do. And in places where I am in Oklahoma, these people love their guns. 
They love their Bibles. They hate black people, and they, they hate abortion. If you talk about those things, they almost don't care about health. They almost don't care about bridges. They almost don't care about education. But you still got to bring the fight to them, like you said. Uh, it has to happen. It has to happen. Uh, and, and I'm telling you. And, and for all, and, and let me just be real clear right now, uh, and I'm sure Reese wants to have a final word uh, uh, after I say this. For all you punk asses out there who keep tweeting and posting, this ain't going to do nothing specific for black people. Did y'all just hear what DeMario said? You've got to demand the request to say, fix this, repair this, fix this. Nobody is going to walk up to your house and hand your ass a check. You've got to mobilize and organize. And the reason I understand that, because my mama and daddy worked with the Clinton Park Civic Club when I was in Houston, the neighborhood where I grew up, grew up in, one of the first uh, master planned communities for black people by HUD in the 1940s. My grandparents migrated from Louisiana into that particular neighborhood. And, w- and when I grew up there, my parents sat there and said, we need new streets, we need new sewer system, we need the park improved, let's convert the old fire station to a senior citizen center. They petitioned the government to do it. City hall, county government, state legislature. So this is one point two trillion dollars is about to be spent all across of America. So for all you punk asses sitting at home right now watching and whining, what you should be doing is aligning with organizations and going to request the money. And so if you running around hollering you B1 or ADOS or FBA and y'all whining about the boule, and guess what? The boule should be mobilizing and organizing. The alphas, the omegas, the kappas, the deltas, the iotas, the sigma gamma rows, aka's, zetas, the links, the eastern star, the prince hall masons, men's groups, women's groups, all of these groups should be doing that. That is taxpayer money. It is about to be spent, and it will be stupid for us to be sitting at home, bitching on Twitter and YouTube chat room and Facebook and Instagram and not getting the money. In the words, Reese, of Frank Lucas, an American gangster, I'm going to get that money. Get that money. (laughs) Absolutely. And the only thing I can add to that is, did you fill out your damn census? Because Mm. this is exactly what the census does. It allocates money based on populations and different things like that. So if you ain't filled out your census, then you can shut the entire hell up. <laughs> Roland, if I could just say one other thing. There are several, there's several legal opportunities here. Several legal opportunities here. So people in your whatever city, contact these big law firms who all sign these pledges to work on racial justice issues and say, we need your help here. This is what we need help with. Organize with your community block clubs and go to those law firms. Yes. All right, folks, got to go to the break. We come back. We're going to talk about a bill that Congressman Jim Clyburn is pushing to uh, get, um, get frankly, uh, dealing with the issue of GIs who do not benefit from the GI Bill due to Jim Crow. We'll tell you about that bill. Today, of course, is Veterans Day. And we'll talk about this story from the insider that says that DNC chair uh, Jamie Harrison is in a battle with white folks that uh, that in the White House for control of the Democratic National Committee. 
Mm, we'll unpack that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Broadcasting live from Los Angeles, right here on the Black Star Network. Don't forget, download the app, folks. Uh, download that app. Uh, we want to hear 50,000 downloads by the end of December. Every platform, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire Stick, uh, Xbox, as well as Samsung TV and... Everybody who gives during the show to support our Brina Funk fan club, where your dollars go to support what we do, I'm going to give you a personal shout-out. And so if you give right now, we have no 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 minimum. Uh, we ask 50 bucks each from each one of our fans over the course of a year. If 20,000 of our fans give at least 50 bucks, that's a million bucks that raised to help fund this show. Uh, and so we want you to uh, – but if you got – 25, as Greg say, you got a dollar or five. Put uh, put the graphic back up, please. As Greg say, put uh, put five or ten on it uh, to make this happen. Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. We giving you stuff. MSNBC not gonna give you. CNN is not going to give you. Fox News damn sure not going to give you, nor will ABC, NBC, and CBS, because we keep it real, we keep it black. And final point, this is real simple. This is not black targeted media. This is black owned. Back in a moment. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only have oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. It's something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger that's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. Really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision. An SUV built around you. All of you. Once upon a time, there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. But really... Who has time for that? Let's go. Feeling myself. I'm feeling she myself. ordered herself a ladder with Prime One Day Delivery, and she was out of there. Now, her hairdressing empire is killing it. And the prince? Well, who cares? Prime changes everything. Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. I'm Shantae Moore. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Today's Black and Missing is Sydney Palmer, who vanished from Dallas, Texas on September 8th. 2021. Uh, Sydney is 26 years old. She's five feet tall, weighs about 100 pounds. She has short, multicolored pink hair, brown eyes, and some facial piercings. She has multiple tattoos, beautiful on the left side of her breast, a pink bow on her forearm, a heart on her neck, a cheetah print on her right shoulder. 
Anyone with information regarding Sidney Palmer's whereabouts should call the Dallas Police Department at 214-671-4268, 214-671-4268. Folks, McDonald's CEO Chris Kimzinski is under fire for a text message that was sent to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot that critics are calling racist. The text referred to two children, Adam Toledo and Jocelyn, uh, Jocelyn Adams, who were shot and killed in the Windy City. Uh, he wrote this to the mayor. P.S. Tragic shootings last week, both at our restaurant yesterday and with Adam Toledo. With both, the parents failed those kids, which I know is something you can't say, even harder to fix. Uh, critics uh, have jumped on him, uh, some demanding that he actually resign as president and CEO. Uh, Congressman Bobby Rush of Chicago issued this statement. I'm utterly horrified by Chris Kamzinski's text blaming the tragic shooting deaths of Chicago children Jocelyn Adams and Adam Toledo on their parents. This is a deplorable message and one that is completely unacceptable for the CEO of a powerful multinational corporation, let alone a corporation that markets aggressively to communities of color and publicly proclaims that black lives matter to espouse. Sadly, McDonald's has a long history of racist behavior and discrimination, which ongoing legal action continues to reveal. McDonald's would not be the multinational corporation it is today if not for the black customer base that has long provided and continues to provide enormous profits. The black community deserves and demands far better responses and far better treatment from McDonald's and its top leaders. As a member of Congress and a black man who has long fought against racism and discrimination, I join with others in demanding that Chris Kamzinski be fired or step down immediately. Now, the CEO, uh, he offered an apology after meeting at the company headquarters with a variety of internal groups. This is what he wrote uh, to the McDonald's team. I recently learned that a text message exchange between me and the mayor of Chicago was made public. The text exchange took place after I had welcomed Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to MHQ in April. That's McDonald's headquarters. The preceding day, a shooting at a McDonald's drive-thru in Holman Square took the life of a 70-year-old Jocelyn Adams. This tragedy came soon after 13-year-old Adam Toledo was fatally shot by a police officer in Little Village. These horrible deaths were painful for Chicago and our McFamily, made more so by the fact that they were both just kids. In the text exchange, I thank Mayor, Lori, Mayor Lightfoot for the visit and reflected on our conversation about the recent tragedies, commenting that the parents failed those kids. When I wrote this, I was thinking through my lens as a parent and reacted viscerally. But I have not walked in the shoes of Adams or Jocelyn's family and so many others who are facing a very different reality. Not taking the time to think about this from their viewpoint was wrong and lacked the empathy and compassion I feel for these families. This is a lesson that I will carry with me. As we think about the challenges facing our communities and the senseless surge in gun violence that is affecting so many children, it is also clear to me that everyone has a role to play. We're a Chicago company born and raised. There is so much about our city to make us proud. That doesn't negate that there is also much that needs to be addressed to ensure our best days are ahead of us. And I can't think of a more urgent priority than ensuring these tragedies come to an end. Quite simply, it is on all of us to do better for the children of our communities. I am committed to working with civic leaders and elected officials to understand what that means for McDonald's. And I'll be asking all of you to join me in this pursuit. Now, uh, Byron Allen, uh, of course, uh, media owner, is taking out several full-page ads uh, condemning uh, the text from, from Kim Zimski, demanding that he also apologize. It took, it took him out in the Chicago newspaper. This, of course, follows a $10 billion lawsuit 
and he has filed against McDonald's uh, for lack of of advertising. Folks, let's talk about politics. Uh, earlier we were talking about uh, what Democrats should be doing when it comes to uh, their messaging and driving it to the public. Well, uh, now there's some potential drama. The insider reported that uh, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison is battling many of his own aides who replaced in the Democratic National Committee uh, by uh, President uh, Joe Biden. In this particular story, it lays out uh, in detail the kind of battle that's been going on when it, came, when it comes to spending of money, when it comes to uh, messaging, when it comes to all sorts of different things. Uh, I want to go to our panel now. Uh, this right here uh, speak, speaks volumes uh, because Democrats, of course, uh, are very upset uh, recently about what took place uh, in Virginia. Uh, of course, Harrison, uh, it was big news when he was named DNC chair. And so you always have this battle because whoever controls the White House, they run the party. Trump, when he was there, he controlled and ran the Republican National Committee. Biden is president. He controls the DNC. But the reality is this here. The party apparatus is made up of 50 states. And so if you want to win, it can't, everything can't be run out of D.C. Uh, reading this story that lays out any number of things, uh, this is what they say. According to uh, folks who were interviewed off the record, go to my iPad, please. It says that Jamie Harrison is being locked out of staffing and operational decisions. Also, the conflict in between Harrison is with Sam Cornell and Mary Beth, Mary Beth Cahill, who was deputy White House chief of staff, who used to be CEO of the DNC. Uh, and then they say Harrison loyalists say he needs more latitude so the party can get back uh, on track. A pretty damning story. Yes, it's inside baseball. Uh, but it also reminds me of the battles that, that Michael Steele had with the Republican National Committee when he was the chair. Yeah, I mean, you know, did they put Jamie Harrison in place so that he can win or did they put him in place so that he can dunk on people on Twitter with these very, you know, clever uh, tweets that he does and dragging people like, hey, I do that, but I'm not going to be the DNC chair. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how they put black people in these places and they don't really set them up to succeed. We know that the Democratic Party, I say this all the time, still has a white is right problem. And that's why you have the people who are actually making staffing and financial decisions are the white folks still running the ship. Mary Beth Cahill was Kerry, John Kerry's campaign manager for his presidential campaign. Uh, he lost. So why the hell you have her running shit? I don't understand the concept of having losers running stuff, even though Jamie Harrison lost his race. So, you know, you can say the same thing about him. But that was in South Carolina. John Kerry should have won that race against a deeply unpopular president. Um, and so it just goes to show how they set up black people to fail, but to still be the figurehead so that they can say, look, we tried it with a black person, didn't work out. Now let's go back to our white, you know, way of doing things. They need to give Jamie Harrison the, the opportunity to make his own staffing decisions like Tom Perez did. I'm sure I didn't hear any about this stuff when Tom Perez was, was in charge and let him sink or swim. And if you do, then you might actually get somewhere. I think that Jamie Harrison ran a pretty campaign aside from losing. And I think that he probably will bring a really fresh perspective to the party that's deeply needed. They need to get away from this white default mentality in terms of the candidates that they back, this white is right mentality, this chasing after the uh, the mythical uh, Trump, you know, uh, Obama Trump voter that's long gone. And they need to really start focus on the focusing on the future of the party, which is the multiracial coalition across the country. 
Uh, DeMario, this is what uh, this story says. Go to my iPad. They've taken this African-American candidate and tokenized him. One of the people familiar with Harrison's frustrations with the DNC told Insider they put him out as the figurehead of the party but haven't actually given any ability to shape its future. At a point where we are coming off this uh, election now, uh, and they've gone to try to pivot towards 2022. Instead of empowering him, they've completely dis disempowered him. Now, in this article, uh, he did give an interview. He disagreed with uh, these various assessments. Uh, I know how these stories go. Uh, I understand why Jamie has to say that publicly. But stories like this don't get written, frankly, if it's not true. You know, Roland, this really rem I've seen this so many times. It really reminds me of a lesson I learned when I was playing football at the University of Oklahoma. My head coach, John Blake, rest in peace, was the first African-American head coach at, at the University of Oklahoma. Coming, a young assistant coming from the Dallas Cowboys, coming off two Super Bowl wins, an OU alumni. When they bought him in, and I was, I was, I'm his in-law, he's an in-law of mine, so I know the backstory. When they bought him in, they said, you know, we're going to hire you to be the head coach and let you be the, the face of this, but we're going to reserve the right to hire your offensive and defensive coordinator. And anybody know anything about football or sports in general, the offense, you need to bring in your own people because you need to have people that's on your team that feel the same way you do, believe in your philosophy, what defense, offense you want to run. Obviously, that didn't work out. Within three years, Coach Blake was fired, and everybody knows the rest of the story with Coach Stoops. My point is, it sounds like that Mr. Harrison is in the very same scenario. And the only thing you can do in that situation is resign. Have respect for yourself, integrity for yourself, and say, look, this is not the job I signed up for. I'm not going to be the face of this when things go bad. You can point at me, but I have no power. My grandmother told me a long time ago, don't worry about status. Get the power. Having the power without the status is okay. You can last a lifetime. Having the status without the power is a recipe to be set up and be flushed down the toilet stool soon and things go wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and on that particular point there, Greg, I'm going back to the inside of the story. Uh, this is what it says. Another friction point came weeks ago when the DNC approved a slate of new party delegates who will have a critical role in all manner of Democratic decision-making. Harrison had submitted a list of names to the White House to fill 75 at-large appointments. But the White House rejected nearly every name he wanted, according to two people familiar with the interaction. The point that DeMario says, makes there is very clear. Uh, status means nothing if you do not have the power to, have, to create change. And we also know when it comes to things like the DNC, having power also means controlling the money. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, and I hope, I know you're on a tight ship producing. I hope you might spend another second uh, scrolling down. I caught that first two lines on Virginia and find it of great interest, um, considering that uh, yep. Democrats. Yep, then there's a recent episode that played out when, the, yeah, when they claimed that, uh, here's what it says right here. When Harrison hit the trail in Virginia, he needed a driver and staffers. He has spent months marshalling party support for what was supposed to be Terry McCullough's victory against the GOP candidate. But when he arrived in the Old Dominion for the final week of the crucial off-year gubernatorial race, he had to borrow a low-level staffer from an outside Democratic group. Three people familiar with the incident told Insider the DNC declined to book the driver a hotel room, a room in Harrison's hotel, forcing the staffer to drive some two hours each way to pick him up. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, Demar, I have to agree with you, brother. I mean, at some point, you you have to have some self-respect. But uh, one of the reasons I think that Jamie Harrison was picked was that he was thoroughly vetted. They know Jamie Harrison ain't gonna bite that hand. Jamie Harrison is a, is a faithful party 
soldier, just like those Democrats in Virginia that didn't stand up when Justin Fairfax was screaming, please, I want this investigation to go on, and asked two black women prosecutors in Boston and Durham to pursue this, and effectively cut the throat of somebody uh, and stood with that soft white blackface-wearing nationalist Ralph Northern and that Attorney General Heron, and basically gave the state to the white nationalist party two and a half years ago. Jamie Harrison been vetted. He ain't gonna bite the hand. He's gonna salute the soft white nationalists and the Democratic Party and that machine in the White House, and they're going to go down and we're all going to suffer. The Democratic Party seems hell-bent on destroying whatever even nominal resistance there is in this country to white nationalists. Now, the simple fact of the matter is that uh, when we look at the history of the Democratic Party, we understand that, uh, wasn't it Ron Brown? Ron Brown was the first DNC chair, black DNC chair, wasn't he? I'm trying to remember. But yep. If, if we, yep. If, if, yep, he was first. If we, Right. And if we remember how he got to be the chair, it wasn't because they wanted to do it. Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88 had basically blown up the party and they were going to have a brokered convention in 88 in Atlanta. Yep. I remember we were in law school. We was going to go down there. We was like, we're just going to tear this motherfucker up. Let's go. And in the <laughs> week before the convention, when they nominated that stooge de caucus, Jesse released his delegates to 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 support the caucus in exchange for getting all those seats. Joe Lewis's son got one. His son got one. But Ron Brown was made the chair of the of the party, and that was the person who basically was the architect of the victory of Bill Clinton in the next election cycle, even though he only won with a plurality of votes. Why am I bringing up? That was probably the last successful DNC chair. No shade on Donna Brazil running Al Gore's campaign, who basically uh, lowered the flag and conceded in Florida when they decided not to fight like they should fight. These white boys are not built for war. And the only time that any political party in this country has served the interests of black people is when we have turned our backs on them and waged a war. Now, I'll say that to say this. Jamie, Jamie Harrison was a safe pick. He knew what it was when he's in there. And he's a little frustrated now because as they fail, as they will likely fail in 2022 and 2024, and then we got to go to some kind of damn guerrilla warfare as this thing disintegrates, they're going to stick his uh, cherub face on the failure and say, see, you Negroes did it again. But if they had just let him do everything he wanted to do, he not going to come outside the lines? Ask Justin Fairfax. Bottom line here, folks, this is real simple. Uh, and, and that is when we talk about uh, power, we talk about control, we talk about uh, you have to actually put your foot down and take a stand. Uh, I'm quite sure that one of the areas where Jamie Harrison is uh, ruffling some feathers, just like Michael Steele did, is who are, who are the vendors. He probably wants more black vendors uh, doing things in there. Uh, and so this Can is also where, and let me say this. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say the Democratic Party, the DNC has raised over $100 million to date. And y'all can't even give Jamie Harrison a driver and, and put the, put his person up in a hotel room. That's why I said quit begging us for some damn money, because y'all ain't even spending it right. But it just goes to show the level of contempt that they have for him, that he's not even afforded the basic uh, necessities or, or, or benefits that any other Democratic, you know, national convention chair would be afforded. That's actually really disgraceful and insulting. And it really shows a lot. I'll tell you right now, point blank. 
I've I, I publicly said uh, to Jamie, fire the entire DNC media team because they damn sure don't know how to create viral videos uh, or, know, <laughs> or how to drive messaging. I mean, so there's, there's, there's a fundamental problem there. And so, again, if you read the story, uh, Jamie has denied a lot of those different things. He gave an on-the-record interview. Yeah, we know he had to do that, but the bottom line is this here. This article was a shot across the bow, and so I dare say, and, this, and here's the other deal. Who is Jamie Harris's greatest benefactor? Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Uh, I, but so Congressman Clyburn, that's what one of those things where, remember, Joe Biden ain't in there without you. That's why you make a phone call and say, Joe, get this shit straight or we're going to have a problem. See, to me, this is not a long conversation. And I know, I, and look, and again, I said earlier, hand-to-hand combat. See, hand-to-hand combat, y'all, ain't always with your enemy. Sometimes right. is with your allies. Come on, yeah. that's right. I mean, this is politics, and politics is Just about saying. who gets what, when, where, and how. It's about the allocation of resources. It's not about showing up at, at the Sunday school and saying, we love you. How are you going to slice the pie? And you're right. Representative Clyburn, my frat brother, he said that Joe Biden would remember us, right? That's what he said. Well, he's not remembering Jamie Harrison, and Jamie Harrison is, is, is analogous to us as a people. The lack of disrespect that Reese was talking about, they wouldn't even give him a driver because that's how they see us as a, as a, as a dispendable. We don't need to do those things for black people. Mm. Bottom line is this here. If you're going to swing, swing, and you might have sometimes have to hit folk who you like. Uh, and so uh, I, I did reach out to Jim Clyburn. He's traveling today. Uh, and so I wanted to have him on talk about uh, the story we're going to discuss next after this break, and that is uh, trying to restore some of the, some of the uh, racial inequities for the GI Bill. Uh, I did reach out to Jamie Harrison as well. They tried to get him on the show anyway to talk about uh, what's next for the Democrats, so hopefully uh, we'll make that happen uh, as well. Got to go to break, pay some bills. First of all, let me thank Amazon, Nissan, uh, and Buick for being partners with us here at Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, we appreciate uh, those who spend money with black-owned media because, as black folks, we buy their products as well. Uh, and so got to go to break. We come back on the flip side. We'll talk about on this memorial, on this Veterans Day, uh, this bill from Congressman Clyburn dealing with the GI Bill and Jim Crow. We'll unpack that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only
Maureen is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language. And she really loves her grandson. Like, really loves. Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny. And you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. A recent fatal shooting uh, involving a Chicago cop had with a history of violence has a black, black family asking, why is this man still on the job? Alberto Covarrubias shot and killed Michael Craig after he called 911 for assistance last month. Craig called and said his wife had a knife to his neck. When the officer entered the scene, he pulled out his taser and gun, instantly shooting. Uh, now, folks, this is the video you're seeing, and so uh, it is very uh, uh, green and graphic uh, as well. This is the body cam footage. The officer has a history of domestic violence and alcoholism. In 2016, uh, uh, Cobra Rubius was arrested for a domestic violence incident and accused of tampering with official paperwork. He appeared to be drunk and refused a breathalyzer. He was later charged with assaulting an officer. Now, the superintendent of Chicago police at the time recommended he get fired. He was suspended for three months and underwent treatment for alcoholism. A psychologist cleared him to return to work. Now, same city. Remember the black social worker, Anjanette Young, whose house was wrongfully raided while she laid in the bed naked? Well, here's an update. The sergeant who oversaw the 2019 botch raid is now facing termination. So Sergeant Alex Walensky violated eight different police department rules from discrediting the department to disrespecting a person and failing to intervene. Young is now suing the Chicago Police Department. All right, let's go to Iowa, where a federal grand jury indicted former Iowa State Patrol officer Robert James Smith for violating motorcyclist Bryce Yakish's civil rights during a 2017 traffic stop. Charges against Yakish were dropped. Smith retired and went on to work for a different police agency where he was accused of excessive force there. If convicted, Smith faces 10 years in prison. Earlier, Iowa agreed to pay Yakish $225,000 to settle his case. When we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered, GI Bill, racial inequity. How is it that we have not done right by those black soldiers who fought for this country during World War II? A new bill from members of Congress, uh, Jim Clyburn and Seth Mouton, could fix that. We'll discuss it next on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. <laughs> Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger that's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. You really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision. An SUV built around you. All of you. Once upon a time, there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. 
But really, who has time for that? Let's go. Feeling myself. I'm feeling she ordered herself a ladder with Prime One Day delivery, and she was out of there. Now, her hairdressing empire is killing it. And the prince, well, who cares? Prime changes everything. Hey, I'm Donnie Simpson. What's up? I'm Lance Gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, so today is Veterans Day uh, here in the United States, and we think about how America treated its veterans. It has not always been good, especially its black veterans. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, as well as uh, Congressman uh, Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, they want to fix a particular issue. This is the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, and they're reviving, this is what the lead says, reviving an effort to pay the families of black service members who fought on behalf of the nation during World War II for benefits they were denied or prevented from taking full advantage of when they returned home from the war. They would give, they would give uh, benefits to the surviving spouses and all living descendants of black World War II veterans whose families were denied the opportunity to build wealth with housing and educational benefits through the GI Bill. Now, uh, people understand this here. Now, I, I want to go to Greg first on this uh, because that was a book that was done, Greg, called When Affirmative Action Was White. I think it was Ira Katzen Bach. I think it was. And that was. Yeah. That's right. Huh? That's right. Ira Katzen. Yes. What what he laid out, and I think that was even a documentary that was on PBS. What he laid out in this book is that the GI Bill was the greatest affirmative action plan in the history of America probably second to the Homestead Act where millions of land was given out to white folks, and how white America, they benefited as a result from that of being able to go to college, being able to buy houses, being able to get low-interest lines of credit and loans as well. Uh, explain to people who don't understand what the GI Bill after World War II meant to white America and how black folks were frozen out of that economic uh, opportunity. Yes, sir. And we're all nodding our heads vociferously. So we all, I think we all understand. In fact, we may have all benefited directly or indirectly from the GI Bill. I mean, it's very important to understand. And you're absolutely right. In fact, that's an excellent, uh, that should be in a, uh, probably a selection for Roland's book club, Ira Katz Nelson's How, How Affirmative Action Was White, and his follow-up book, Fear Itself, which talks about those New Deal programs and how racism uh, didn't completely shut black folk out but certainly so severely crippled black folk who should have benefited that it really set the stage for the economy and the structure we have today. And it's very, it's very simple. When you have access to capital, like all those veterans were supposed to have in theory, and you exclude black people, white soldiers got low mortgage guaranteed loans to go and purchase their first homes where you build wealth. They also got to go to school on the GI Bill, university education, and it basically built the middle class in the United States of America in the 1950s and 60s. It built and expanded the middle class. Now, those same soldiers, many of them, used those, used those guaranteed mortgages to purchase homes in racist uh, neighborhoods, including newly built places like uh, in yeah. Pennsylvania, where they had mm -hmm. completely segregated new houses that you could use your GI loan to build. 
Now, that's that's important when we look at what's going on now with this this bill proposed by Clyburn and and Moulton. And I think think today, maybe it wasn't today, but uh, uh, Senator Warnick is supposed to be introducing uh, companion legislation in the Senate. So here's let me let me let me just bring it home directly. My father, Haywood Carr, was a World War II veteran. He and three of his brothers were drafted out of East Tennessee. Footnote, all y'all think that saving Private Ryan bullshit where you can't have all the boys in the family come, <laughs> you better go check World War II. But at any rate, they were all World War II veterans. Now, he's an ancestor, but my mother, who's down there in Houston, is will be 95 her next birthday, and I, my brother and sister, are direct descendants. This bill passes that loan guarantee applies to me, too. And you can Mm. use the GI Bill to get that guaranteed federal loan to purchase a home as many times as you want. Do you understand what that would do for people? If you had a... If your father or mother... Well, the women's here, I guess you got the the waves and the wax, but if you've got a father who was in World War II, an active veteran, and you're a, a daughter or a son of a World War II veteran... You better be asking people to pass this bill. You better be calling Congress. Why? This could change your life in 2021. And, and, and of course, finally, the GI Bill wasn't just about mortgages for homes. wasn't just about uh, education, which is extremely important. It extends to a number of other benefits, including car loans. I mean, it literally put the floor under the middle class in this country. And by shutting black people out, and I read the bill, that was proposed last year and then died from from non-action, went to committee and died. In that bill, they literally have to put the the word black in to remedy the original legislation that was passed in 1944. I mean, it's a very important bill. This isn't a minor thing. Um, again, uh, Reese, uh, you, you often get a lot of people. Uh, who um, who yell, holler, and scream at Congress? What's the CBC doing? Uh, when are they gonna get reparations? Well, the reality is, um, this is about affecting the the people who were directly impacted. That's what this bill is. Uh, and so, I wonder if. Again, what did I say earlier? Mobilize and organize. If you're out there and you've been yelling, howling, and screaming about reparations, are you support? You waiting on HR 40? What you should be doing is also uh, saying pass this bill because when you talk, this is not just the spouses; it's the spouses mm-hmm. and right. the children. Right. That's a whole bunch of black mamas and daddies out there, which then means their children are going to be benefiting. You know, Roland, I'm looking down because there's been a commenter in your um, Facebook feed that's been talking about ADOS 101 and reparations, and I haven't seen it pop up during this discussion. What happened? Where you at? Because this sounds a whole lot like reparations, if you ask me. Oh, there he is. Okay. Well, you know, I think it's interesting to see how how little people mobilize, people who are supposedly, you know, single-issue voters and around the issue of reparations, around things like this, the Tulsa, um, the Tulsa descendants, and that, that wasn't federal legislation for them to get reparations from the federal government, but even in that case, they're seeking reparations from the state of Oklahoma and other parties. Um, you don't see the same energy behind that. This is an incredibly important bill that needs to see a lot of mobilization behind it. We can't constantly say, what's the CBC doing? What's the Democratic Party doing? And then you don't 
put your energy behind something like this that's very transformative. When you couple the way that Black people were um, were were, system were systemically excluded and purposely excluded from the GI Bill with redlining, as Dr. Carr put, pointed out, how people were able to, white people were able to move into these racist neighborhoods, they were able to accumulate so much wealth, so much of the wealth gap actually comes from, um, from, um, from, from housing, from home ownership. And so there are so many layers of discrimination baked in. Not every single Black person is going to benefit, obviously, from it. But as a whole, as a community, if we care about our community, then this is something that we should all be able to get behind, unequivocally. And here's the deal. Here's the deal, Demario. This is where you challenge Republicans. Oh, I, I thought y'all loved the military. I thought mm -hmm. you love our veterans. That's true. Will you support it? Yes or no? Yeah, Roland, this is something that's very personal for me, for coming from a military family, going back to my four-time great-grandfather who served in the U.S. Seminole Wars in the 1800s, to my great-grandfather, who was a, a World War I military veteran, to my father, who was a Vietnam uh, combat veteran. The reality, uh, Roland, to what you're saying about telling people that you need to support this, Listen, acknowledgement is not enough. We know what happened. We know that Brother Carr, Dr. Carr's family was shut out, and so many of my great uncles and so many people were shut out. To acknowledge a wrong but not rectify it is the epitome of white supremacy. It is worse to not acknowledge if you're going to acknowledge and not rectify. So, yes, this is something we should mobilize. But, Roland, I like what you said more than mobilize, organize. Mobilization is great, but that's just a flare up mentality. We have to be organized for sustained action. And this is a bill that's going to take sustained action to get, as Dr. Carr said, get to committee, and then get out of committee, then get out of the House, then get passed through the Senate, and then actually get to the president's desk. That takes a lot of work. But in my personal experience with the CBC, they are accessible. In my personal experience with the people like Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and Congressman Horsford and Congresswoman Maxine Waters and so many more, they will work with you. And this is an area that will benefit substantially hundreds of thousands of black people to have these type of tools and assets to create wealth. So I think it's an outstanding bill. It's something we're certainly going to help mobilize. It's also important to me because my client, Hughes Van Ellis, one of the three living survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre, 100-plus years old, he is a World War II combat veteran, and he's dealing with this issue right to this day. And his, he and his children can definitely benefit. This is a bill that must pass, and we must put all our efforts behind it as an entire community. That's right. Roland, can uh, I just say... Folks, can I go to break shocker. real quick? Uh, yeah, go ahead, real quick. Can I just say real quick, of course, the person who's for reparations is against this bill. I just had to say that in your comments. So they don't keep the same energy when it comes to reparations unless it's this this mythical reparations package that is nowhere near passing. Just wanted to point that out. And and, and I didn't want to roll. I know you got to go to break. By the way, it's great to see these ads that only I, ha I only have eyes for you, the flamingos. That's a hit, brother. I can listen to that 15 times. But but real quick, for the folks who don't know, the bill is named for Isaac Woodward and Joseph Maddox. It's the Isaac Woodward Joseph Maddox GI Bill Restoration Act. Isaac Woodward was 26 years old when a bus driver on a Greyhound bus blinded him, beat his eyes blind in Batesburg, South Carolina. He was a veteran. It's one of the triggers that led Harry Truman to, to, to desegregate the Army. And Joseph Maddox got into Harvard. He was a veteran of World War II as well. Harvard wouldn't admit him because they said they didn't want to set a precedent. 
and he didn't get to use his GI Bill to go to school. Now, the NAACP and others raised money for him, but that's the, that's who the bill is named for. I just wanted to mention that in passing. All right, folks, real quick, quick break. We come back, two disturbing stories dealing with black children, one out of Utah, one out of South Carolina. That's next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Shot Network. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language. And she really loves her grandson. Like, really loves. Hey, I'm Amber Stevens-West. Yo, what up, y'all? This is Jay Ellis, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome back. In South Carolina, a 90-year-old was forced to clean a school bathroom with a toothbrush. Andrea Garrison, the principal of Jefferson Elementary School, allegedly handed out the punishment days after the student put too much toilet paper in a commode. The child's grandfather voiced his disdain at the Chesterfield County School District Board meeting. My blood, my granddaughter, nine-year-old child, who cannot stand here before you like I have and have done before. Like the previous speakers, I agree with them wholeheartedly. But what has been done to my granddaughter, I am a broken man. You didn't break her because I will not let her fall. But you have broken me. You have hurt me to my heart. What this administration or what your board have decided to do as far as this principle does not mean a thing to me if it's not the just thing. That's all that matters, the just thing. Now I will read my statement. I'm here before this panel and others to say something that I never thought I would ever say. I surrender. I surrender to see how 
There are those that have no consideration other than their own and their own selfishness. A good friend of mine for years told me to make concern today just about my granddaughter and not about the wrong that has been happened to or will happen to others. But I cannot do that. I can not just stand here and speak for my granddaughter and not speak for other children or other people. I cannot do that. I have to speak for us. I don't care where you come from or where you're going. I don't care if you're black, blue, green, yellow. I don't care. We all should. Folks, it is not clear. It's not clear if any punishment uh, is going to be meted out uh, by the uh, school district. Let's go to Utah, where a grieving mother blames the school district for failing to protect her black daughter from bullying, which led the 10-year-old to commit suicide. Brittany Tishenor Cox says she had reached out to Davis School District several times to discuss how both classmates and her teacher were treating her daughter, Isabella. She said her daughter was being taunted for being black and autistic. The family wants to know why the Utah School District repeatedly ignored her concerns about the bullying. Now check this out. Isabella's suicide comes two weeks after the U.S. Department of Justice released a damning report of the Davis School District regarding discrimination in its schools. Investigators found that the district administrator intentionally ignored serious and widespread racial harassment in its school for years failing to respond to hundreds of reports from black students after being called the slave, the N-word, and hearing threats about them being lynched. DeMario, all these white folks were running around talking about how education is important in New Jersey and Virginia and other parts of the country. They're protesting at school board meetings over the fictitious critical race theory being taught. They're yelling and screaming about uh, different uh, school books or, or text in libraries not said a damn thing about these two stores. <laughs> well, they're not going to say anything because, again, they don't consider us to be fully human, and it's about power. That's all that CRT stuff is about them being able to control the narrative. You know, with the young lady, the young girl, nine years old, that was used a toothbrush at a public restroom, I mean, that is ridiculous. It reminds me of a case I had in Seattle, Washington, where my 11-year-old autistic black kid was sat outside in the cold weather for uh, 45 minutes to an hour without his mother ever knowing about it because they just thought, well, that's the best place for him right now. My point is, Roland, these folks don't fully recognize our humanity. They don't respect us. I definitely can empathize with that grandfather, but I hope he has an aggressive, competent lawyer that has already filed a lawsuit against that school district and that individual uh, teacher, because that's what we did in Seattle successfully, because that is, just doesn't make any sense. That child could have got all type of diseases. Anything could have happened having her touch a public stool. I, d I don't understand that at all outside of just racism. As far as the young lady uh, in Utah, that is a Title VI violation, and I, I'm, I, I hate that that happened to that, that child, but I'm glad to hear that the Department of Education has come in with their report. But again, that needs to go to court. There needs to be real accountability. These people have to feel pain, and the only pain you can make them feel through the justice system or the legal system is through money, and that's just the, the limitations. Uh, looks like we froze DeMario. Uh, Greg, your comment. Yeah, I looked up uh, this this woman, uh, the principal there and the school, Jefferson Elementary. It's only about 375 students. They're 100% Title I. They qualify for free lunch, so, you know, they're, they're under the line in terms of class. Um, 
about a little over half white, 55% white, 30% black, and the rest, you know, various combinations. And, uh, they, they, you know, that county actually, Chesterfield County, is on the border with North Carolina. In fact, Chiraw is a city in there. That's where Dizzy Gillespie is from, actually, John Burst Gillespie. Um, they racist as hell. <laughs> so, you know, to hear this elder say that it broke him, no, nah, brother, I tell you what, and I'm just saying this, you know, I'm not advocating for violence, but having worked in for the Philadelphia Public Schools and continue to do work in Philadelphia with education, you know, if a child had come home and told uh, their parents or grandparents in Philly that the school teacher had given them a, a brush and said clean, they would have went to school, beat up the principal, whoever saw it, whoever heard about it. <laughs> so what we basically see is that in this country, and again, I, you know, that other case, I agree with Mario, I mean, it's Title VI case, and what we see is they don't care about education. They care about control. They're going to break black people. My students, I'll say this real quick, my students uh, at Howard, I was having this conversation with them earlier in the, this week, my Education in Black America class, it struck me how, how many of them say that they felt like they didn't have childhoods when they were in elementary school, junior high school, now middle school, high school, and found themselves often set upon. I had a student tell me this story. One of my law students told me this story last night in class. He's from a town in Georgia, one of those towns where they have two separate proms and two separate homecoming queens. But the parents of the school rolling in when they were in middle school had a meeting because the white girl was dating the black boy. Her parents from Australia didn't care. But the white parents of the other students in the town had a meeting to discuss what must be done. And they tried to hide it by saying, oh, well, we don't want them dating. They're too young to date. But other children were dating. It was the interracial dating that they had. A, they literally had a meeting, man, had a meeting and wanted this girl to transfer from the school. This is not going away, y'all. We can't pray it away. You can't convince it away. All this, all this going to take a fist. Organizing and struggle on all levels. Reese. It's demonic, for starters. It's just demonic. It's sickening to hear, once again, uh, the way that Black kids are being terrorized and their spirits are broken. In the case of young Izzy, um, the, the young girl in Utah, you know, this whole farce about education being an issue and well, when it's too early to teach white kids about racism, they're, I won't say all, some of them, are already being indoctrinated at home with racism. The problem isn't about them learning about racism. They're executing racism. They are, they are, they are acting out racism in their classrooms. The problem is with them being forced to face how despicable it is because the people that they are inflicting harm upon are also human beings. That's what the real threat is. Because white kids are not ignorant about racism. They know full damn well what it is. So there's not a threat of teaching them about racism at all. But in terms of what Dr. Carr said, I mean, I'd tell you what, my mom would have been at that school and it would have been some furniture <laughs> moving. You know, but what they're banking on is black people, and I'm not saying this in any way to insult the, the, the grandfather there, but they're banking on us being docile. They're banking on us being compliant. They're banking on us appealing to them, see our humanity, and they won't. They're doing exactly what they want to do, how they want to do it. And the only question is, how do we react and how do we protect ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, all right, folks, I got to go to a quick break. And when we come back, uh, the Cappas, they're out of $3 million. One of their own stole it. I'll tell you about that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger. That's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. You really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision. An SUV built around you. All of you. Betty is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where you going? Hi, I'm Vivian Green. You're hey everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome back. The finance director, the former finance director for Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, has pled guilty in federal court to stealing $3 million from the fraternity. Curtis D. Anderson appeared before U.S. District Judge Timothy Savage in Philadelphia. Anderson told investigators he stole the money to fund a gambling habit while struggling with alcohol addiction. He was fired in December 2018 after the fraternity discovered the missing money. The judge is allowing Anderson to remain free until his sentencing in February. The maximum sentence he could, could be as high as 82 years in prison and a fine of more than one million dollars. Let's go to New Orleans. The New Orleans Library Foundation is suing prominent jazz trumpet player Urban Mayfield. He's actually headed to prison for improperly using monies meant for the New Orleans Public Library. Him and his business partner, Ronald Markham, were sentenced to 18 months in prison for using more than $1.3 million from the New Orleans Public Library for personal use. U.S. District Judge Jay Zaney ordered Mayfield and Markham to pay 500 bucks a month each for restitution, but the foundation believes it may have found a quicker way to claw its money back by suing Mayfield, Markham, and the musical group they once controlled. Man, I don't, you know, we did the story just the other day, uh, uh, DeMario, of the sister who took $300,000 in PPP funds for personal use out of Florida. Her dad's running for Congress to replace Congressman Alcee Hastings. Now she's facing up to 20 years in prison. Look, man, I ain't trying to do nothing that's going to put me uh, in prison. Uh, I don't care even if it's federal prison. Y'all go ahead and play around with that money. See what happens. No, man. I think the issue, too, is where have your checks and balances in place as a business owner, someone that's running an organization. Make sure you're understanding who's dealing with the money, but you cannot trust any one person to have that much control over the finances. I mean, that's just the reality here. Obviously, our brothers with the uh, Kappas, uh, their system broke down. Obviously, that happened at the, at the public library. So I counsel my clients particularly when I was representing a lot of NFL guys, I don't do as much of that as, as I do now. You got to make sure you understand the checks and balances and making sure you're keeping your money tight. And on the other side of the thing, you know, federal, any prison, I don't want to do one minute, one second in prison. I hate to even go over to the prisons to, to uh, uh, visit clients or I've done, I do pro, do actually have programs in prisons, uh, but it's not a place I want to be at any time. 
Uh, well, uh, uh, Reese, I probably now see why uh, Scott Bolden can't uh, give more money to Roland Martin Unfiltered because, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's trying to help the Cappers out with that $3 million that's missing. <laughs> <laughs> Roland, you are so messy. Oh, my God. You okay, I, I, I'll be a little petty. I'll, I'll be a little you petty. You are petty. You are king of petty. Okay. <laughs> you know, but this goes to the show. Like, black people, you can't get away with the shit that the white folks do. You just can't. You got to have your T's crossed your eyes dotted because that's how they get the black folks is through the finance. They can't get you on some, some physical violent shit. They're going to get you on the financial side. So like DeMario said, have your money, right? Pay your taxes, get the bookkeeping, right? Don't steal. Don't allegedly steal, you know, do everything you can. If you are, if you are entrusted with the fiduciary responsibility, then carry that out with integrity, and you won't find yourself in jail. I wouldn't play with nobody's money. I don't want nobody playing with my money. But it is interesting when you look at somebody, you know, the way that Black people are sentenced in these kind of crimes, as opposed to somebody like Paul Manafort, who was doing all kind of wire fraud and things like that, and he's walking free, you know, and he got a pardon. And so, you know, the justice system is not um, equal. We know that white-collar criminals get treated differently than, you know, regular criminals or other criminals. But even then, the Black folks still get the Black folk treatment when it comes to white-collar crime. I, I look, Greg. I ain't trying to be petty, but but I, I can I can't see a man walking into the federal prison, shimming. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm sorry. I I I, I, I could, was, I'm sorry. I couldn't help. I couldn't help it. You know. You know. I mean, but the story is that gambling. Brother had a gambling addiction, which is a very serious deal. So hey, you know, hey, but I'm I get that, but but you gotta have somebody checking the finance director. That's that you gotta you gotta you gotta have checks and balances. That's that's really to me that is the most important. Say, bro, hey, 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 that went over a six year period. Hey, hey, this period. Hey, again, that's when you're doing too much shimmying. You weren't paying attention to the look. (laughs) Hey, I got a CFO and a bookkeeper. I can pull up my account right now. Uh. What's that fifteen hundred dollars? That's right. I'm just saying, Greg, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm you, you got to do that. And again, I, I just want to, you know, emphasize to everybody: we definitely need the support for Roland Martin Unfiltered. Understand what hard work and sacrifice looks like. Now, I got an Alexa sitting over there on my desk near at my working desk over there, and you know, I'm definitely not a Jeff Bezos fan, but it ain't nothing but hard work and sacrifice that has allowed the Black Star Network to emerge. And for and force organized force. I mean, turn Byron Allen into a champion of the race, <laughs> Roland. You know what I'm saying to force some of these companies to begin to spend some of these dollars. That's hard work and sacrifice. And you gotta dot every I, cross every T, as you said, and keep them books clean so that you can pull up your phone and say, "No, here it is." But I'm saying all that in this context, as you say, Reese, as Paul Rosen said in the Emperor Jones, as big stealing like you does, and little steal. I mean, big stealing like I does, and little stealing like you does. Joe Manchin who is the chair of the uh, the committee that writes the energy policy in the House of Representatives, owns this stock in Energy Systems Incorporated. He made almost half a million dollars 
last year in his stock and dividends, and his wife made just about as much, and he turned over control of the firm to his son, Joseph. They stealing in a country, in a state that's 50th or 49th or 48th in damn near every category that matters in politics. Now, when you look at what happened in New Orleans, that ain't no money compared to the big legal stealing they're doing. However, they had to cancel a literacy program in that New Orleans thing with the public library. This cat bought a solid gold trumpet. Bought a solid gold trumpet. Come on, man. And in Philly, you know, I say Philly because I I, I can't count as many times in 20 years I've passed by the Kappa headquarters there in North Philly on Brawl Street. Now, all fun and games aside, and I'm sure Scott is weeping real tears tonight along with every, every other new. Ain't no Greek-led organization of African descent got $3 million to lose. Mm-hmm. That is literacy program. That's voter lying. registration. That's everything you've been talking about, Roland. Get out to vote campaigns. Get scholarships to children. And you're right, Demario. Gambling is a hell of an addiction. And we know Philly is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Atlantic City. So when I saw the name of the casino, I said, I know what this brother was doing. But dude, 78 checks? Who's the comptroller mm. for Kappa Alpha Psi? How did Six you years. Anyway, I'm going to pause Come with on. that. It's just, it's mind blowing. Six years. It did over six years. I know. Period. Uh, in fact, I, I I got a cap I got a cap on YouTube who are mad. Uh, I'm like, dude, come on now. First of all, you know, doggone well. Uh, Dale Morrow, uh, he goes, uh, that last comment by Roland Martin has stopped me from sending any money, and I repeat, any money to his program, no matter how valuable it is to the community. Yeah, I can be petty too. It's all good, uh, Dale. Cause let me shout out those who sent us money during the show. Uh, uh, Top Byers, Vincent Kemp, Tommy Williams, Stephanie Avent, Rodney, Camille Yeverton. Uh, I want to thank uh, all y'all uh, for sending in uh, support for the Roland Martin Bring the Funk fan club uh, during the show. Uh, let me also, matter of fact, let me just go ahead and just type in here. Uh, let's see. Uh, Charles Richardson, I appreciate it uh, as well. Uh, thank you so uh, very much. Uh, again, uh, we, we, you know, we got our folks who support the show. Uh, let me give uh, some more. Timothy Parks, thank you so very much. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Frederick Wright, Willard Rose, Krishana Johnson, Kenneth Antoinette Noel, Jasmine Green, Frederick Jones, Constance Converse. Uh, let's see. Tommy Long, Ernestine Lawrence, uh, Letitia Kreit, uh, Adora Caldwell, D. Davidson, Mary Spicer, Robert, Verdell Lee, uh, Donald, Justin Collins, Vincent Brown, Charmaine Wallace. Uh, yeah, I want to thank y'all. And uh, let me see. Uh, that's the folks who just gave via uh, Cash App. Uh, let me shout out uh, here. Let's see here. T- T- uh, Talicia Burnett uh, on PayPal. Uh, let me uh, thank uh, Ralph Austin uh, on PayPal uh, as well. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I got a couple of more. Pamela Jones, thank you so much. Damon uh, Lagon, thanks a bunch as well. Uh, we also have uh, Eric Deering uh, as well. So, uh, folks, if y'all give to us on YouTube, I appreciate that. But remember, we only get 55% of all you give on YouTube uh, because they keep 45%. So if you give to us direct, we get the whole 100%. So, PayPal, R. Martin, uh, Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. Uh, PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal, R. Martin Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Zelle, excuse me, Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Uh, and I will soon have the address for y'all to send stuff to. We moved. We want to make sure our mail, everything gets transferred. So I'll have some of y'all still want to send physical checks. I appreciate that. We'll do that uh, real soon. I'm back. Uh, so we're here tomorrow. Live from 
LA, the Mario, Greg, Reese. I certainly appreciate y'all. Thanks so much. Erica Savage Wilson, normally on Thursday. We're still praying for you uh, to get better. Uh, she posted a photo uh, on social media a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, we still want to give you a shout-out, uh, Erica. Hey, I'll be here tomorrow. My nephew Christopher's birthday is tomorrow. My brother's birthday is on. He'll be 54 years old on Saturday. I'm 53 on Sunday, so we back-to-back-to-back. And so that's how we do it in Fish University. I'll see you guys on Saturday for your homecoming in Nashville as well. Folks, I got to go. I got to interview Breacher Webb in just a second for our new show, Rolling with Rolling, Rolling, Rolling with Rolling on the Black Star Network. We've been, we're busy here working, folks. But we appreciate all of y'all joining us. I'll see you tomorrow. Ho! you, Roland Martin, for always giving voice to the issues. Look for Roland Martin in the whirlwind, to quote Marcus Garvey again. The video looks phenomenal, so I'm really excited to see it on my big screen. Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. I got to defer to the brilliance of Dr. Carr and to the brilliance of the Black Star Network. I am rolling with rolling all the way. Honored to be on a show that you own, a black man owns the show. Folks, Black Star Network is here. I'm real uh, revolutionary right now. Rolling was amazing on that. Stay black. I love y'all. I can't commend you enough about this platform that you've created for us to be able to share who we are, what we're doing in the world, and the impact that we're having. Let's be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You can't be black-owned media and be scared. You dig? Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. 
That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Envy's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.